after watching that video for a second time, the only thought that kept coming through my mind is, I don't know how church plants ever actually happen. They are a miracle from God. When I think about our church there, um, we showed up at this middle school and nothing ever worked. And we asked people to come, you know, before the sun came up to set it all up, to do it all, to walk through all this. And, uh, and then it was just this hard work day after day after day. I was looking at the video and um, if you're new here, you don't even recognize it, but the guy who's pushing the cart, Brian, uh, has passed away at our church and we've been able to walk with this family. And then some of the other things, uh, it's just the reminiscing, it's a miracle, it's a miracle from God that we're here and yet, it's all the praise and the glory goes to him. So when I think about four years at this church, pastoring this church, um, the only word that comes to my mind is, is just grateful. Grateful. It's nothing I did. It's God. It's God. It's, it's God through us. It's life change, like Brian in this picture who, you know, professes that. It's time and time again. I was watching Will Purdy on the front row, uh, who we also got to baptize here. It's it's watching our friends gather together, the people that we've walked through life together. And, um, and as I look back on that, I remember, I remember sitting in Durham, North Carolina, after we made the decision to go with my, my wife and our two kids and one on the way and packing up and saying goodbye to our, our friends and walking into what we thought was the abyss, right? The, the unknown. No, we, we didn't know what was coming next. We, we were hungry for something. And then uh, we flew into Alpharetta. I stayed at this hotel off of Windward Parkway. And then we had our very first vision night in a barn in Milton, Georgia. I, I'm, I'm curious. I, was anybody there? Yeah, just a few, right? Um, by the way, that's what happens. God uses the people for a season, and he grows this thing. And, and I remember sitting down. We, we had this grandiose vision for this church, and the secret that nobody knew is we had absolutely no clue what we were talking about. Okay. We, we, just, we just talked about all this stuff that was theoretical, and then, and then coming back, and we moved here, and we had these core team meetings at, at Northside Church in Roswell, where, again, we would gather, we'd try to play music, and uh, we'd try to do all these different things, and cast a vision, and we'd see friends come. I, I remember moving into Thrive Coworking in downtown Alpharetta, and pulling out my laptop one day. I told Allison, I'm going to pack up and go to work. I showed up, grabbed my laptop, and I was like, what do I do now? <laughs> like, there's this vision to lead a bunch of people, and there's no people. Right? And then and you fast forward, and I remember our launch Sunday. Okay, we showed up at DeSanta Middle School, and by the way, the week before that, we flew in this guy from, uh, he was a church consultant from an organization called Portable Church, uh, and their, their job was to bring this big trailer full of stuff for us to set up and tear down the church. Well, he shows up in a yellow Mustang convertible, okay? And he, he comes in about 80 miles an hour, pulls up, he has a case of Red Bull in his hand, he comes out, and he spends the day with us. By the end of the day, he's sweating bullets, because I kid you not, he drank the entire case. And my thought was, great, we haven't even started the church and somebody's going to die. Like, we're going to be doing a funeral right here at DeSanta this week. And, and we, we set all this stuff up, and we had this great time together. Uh, we took a picture, and we commemorated what was going to be the next week, where August 12, 2018, we all gathered together in this middle school, not knowing what was going to happen, and a ton of people showed up. Over 250 people showed up, but nobody told us. Nobody told us that it's your aunt and your uncle and your friends and your cousins, and, and they're not coming back next week. Okay, so we showed up the next week, and it was like 40 of us sitting around in a circle thinking, here we go now. Like, this is church planting. We're going to get started. And over the last four years, that has been what church planting is. It's the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. See, it's seasons of 
change. Uh, and it's seasons of hard time. It's pandemics, which nobody would tell us that was going to happen. And it's parties where we hung out outside and just did cookouts and gathered together at parks and did different things. It's baptisms. It's battles. It's worship like you experience today. It's war that you see that goes on that nobody sees, but it's going on in your soul all the time. One of the greatest lessons that God has taught us throughout all of this is just keep going. If I can give you that one piece of advice, most of life, just don't quit. Keep trusting, keep going, and God tends to do something because what we found is as we've kept going, not only is God growing his church and building his church, but he's creating a resolve within his people that humbles you, that, that, and, and it builds a trust in you to keep going. Just keep going. Y'all, four years. It feels like in some ways an eternity, and in some ways it feels like a blip. Like it just came and went. It's overwhelming to think about all the life change that the Lord has allowed us to experience. Families have been restored. Marriages have been fixed. People have been baptized. I've watched, I've watched some of you grieve some of the hardest times in your life, and yet community came around you and literally saved your life emotionally and spiritually. Honestly, it's hard to chronicle all that God has done, but he has been so kind to us. We've been a part of church planting all over the world. If you didn't know this, City Church in our four years has helped start a church in London and in Santo Domingo. We're coming alongside a church in Greenville, South Carolina right now. We've been able to send out a missionary full-time from our church to Southeast Asia who lives there. We, we've done things like we've seen kids get fostered and adopted. I've sat in courtrooms in our county to watch people take new kids into their family. We've come alongside of failing businesses during COVID to help them be restored. I've done marriage counseling. We've cried together. We've laughed together. You guys have walked alongside of one another and lives have been changed. There is so much to celebrate that God has done over the last four years and yet there's still so much work to be done. What I want to do today is I want to give you a little recap of why we are called City Church and a little glimpse into the specific calling that we believe that God has given us to shape our church for what we're going to do. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, grab it and meet me in the book of Jeremiah. If you're new to Bible study, just flip to the middle of your Bible, and it's, it's somewhere in the middle, right around Isaiah, Jeremiah. They're two pretty long books. And we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 29, which is one of the most famous chapters in the Bible because of Jeremiah 29, 11, although the context for this most of us miss. So I'll give you just a second to get to Jeremiah chapter 29. And by the way, it's on the screen as well. Verse 1 says this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priest, the prophets, <coughs> and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All right, let's do some work here. We've got to do a little Bible study, a little passage work on this, and we're going to understand what's going on, because we're kind of jumping into the middle of a story, into an obscure Old Testament passage that, if we get it, connects the dots for everything that we do around here, but you kind of have to, under, you have to understand a couple things. The really important things you need to understand is how God himself functioned in the Old Testament and how he functioned in particular with the nation of Israel. Because it's going to shape what's significant here. So first, let me talk about a little bit about how God functioned in the Old Testament and why that matters. In the Old Testament, God promised to give a certain people, that's the nation of Israel, a land. Every, every Old 
Testament promise was a promise tied specifically to a land. Now, what you need to understand is, as you extrapolate that land, God is actually making a promise to you too. That land is heaven that's going to be on earth one day. So there's these small promises that if you extrapolate them out, it's the same promise for all of God's people. Yet, in the Old Testament, the specificity of that promise was the nation of Israel and their land being Jerusalem or Israel itself. What, what that meant was God's promises were tied to a particular people and a particular place. God governed the nation of Israel as a theocratic nation. Now, just so you're not confused, because that word gets thrown around a lot, let me just tell you, America, as much as we love this place, is not a theocratic nation. We are a pluralistic nation that was designed based off of some biblical principles. We are not a Christian nation, all right? Not like Israel. Israel was. They were a theocratic nation. What's important, though, is the nation of Israel, with its specific geographic promises, had a tie to that land, and if they lost that land, they lost God's presence. That's really important. There were always, in any covenant, there were blessings and curses, If Israel walked away from God, they lost the land, which means they lost the promise, okay? With that in mind, you have to trace Israel's history a little bit. Israel was one country that had a civil war. That that country divided into two. Just to make it simplistic, the northern kingdom was Israel, the southern kingdom was Judah. Israel was the bad guys, Judah was the good guys. What ended up happening is God would frame through his prophets, priests, and kings, and he would look at them and he would say, look at your brothers in the north. It's a mirror as to what's going to happen to you if you walk away from me. So after this divide, after this civil war, there was a war in Israel, and the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom and exported or deported the nation, the northern nation, out. God sent Jeremiah, this prophet, for 28 chapters in the book of Jeremiah to tell the nation, if you don't follow me, you're going to end up like your brothers. If you don't follow me, this is what's going to happen. Warning after warning after warning. With that in mind, let's jump in to this text. By the way, can I just say this before we jump in? Let me me say this. It's God's kindness. It is always God's kindness that he warns you over and over and over again. Not to, not to do those things, not to stop following, okay? He, he keeps saying, it's my promises that will keep you safe. Because oftentimes in our lives, what we do is we look at God and we say, God, what are you doing? And yet God's telling you, no, there's a better way. So, so for these 28 chapters, God takes the nation of Israel and he tells them there's a better way. Until that time actually came in 597 BC where this country named Babylon invades the nation of Judah and then in 586 BC, just 10 years later, they make a full destruction of the people. And during that 10-year gap, Jeremiah writes them a letter and he tells them exactly what God had in store for them. Y'all, just so we're clear, God doesn't say follow my ways because he wants you to have a boring and restrictive life. God warns over and over again, Because if we don't follow him, we end up in misery and in a different type of slavery and a different kind of culture. You you see, you don't need to worry about God's warnings. You need to worry about when God becomes absent. For the nation of Israel, he loved them enough that he continued to send them people. It's like parenting. I don't know a single parent that loves their kid that doesn't discipline them. And they don't do that because they're mad or they don't like their kids. They do that because they see the train wreck coming, right? And they're warning them, don't do it. I love you so much. I have to tell my kids this all the time. I got four of them, 
which means there's always havoc, right? And I tell my kids, look, you're not, you're not grounded because I hate you. You're grounded because I love you so much, and if you continue to act this way, it's going to destroy you. And that's what God was doing with the nation of Israel. So with that in mind, look at it again. These are the words. After 28 chapters, after 28 chapters of warnings, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem, where Jeremiah was, to the surviving elders of the exiles, okay? And to the priests and the prophets and the people whom Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. See what's going on now? Jeremiah, who was still in Jerusalem for these 10 years before the complete conquest, writes a letter, don't miss this, to the surviving elders of the exile. That means things are bad. Like these are the lucky ones that survived. They're the ones that weren't killed along the way because here's what, here's what Babylon would do. They would take a group of people after they killed everybody else. They would assimilate you into your culture. And here's what they recognized. It's the same thing we see today. The first generation would stick to their cultural identity. By the time you got to the second generation, you tend to be a little bilingual. You tend to assimilate a little bit. By the time you got to the third and fourth, Babylon knew that you would completely assimilate into their culture and you would lose yours. Y'all, the nation of Israel knew that that's what was happening. And it was awful for them. They knew that they were just one generation away from losing God completely. And Jeremiah, through God, writes them. And here's what he says in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice this. Who sent the nation of Israel into exile? Class participation. Anybody? God. Not Nebuchadnezzar. You need to know that. It's not kings of this world that do anything. This is one of the hardest lessons we have to learn is that God is ultimately sovereign over everything and it's God's love that sometimes puts us in precarious positions that we can't understand at the time. For Israel, what they had experienced when they went into exile was God ultimately giving themselves over to what they had asked for for a long time. I, I say this all the time. At some point, guys, at some point, if you spend your entire life saying, God, leave me alone, God, leave me alone, God, leave me alone, I don't need you, I don't want you, at some point, he's going to say, okay, I, I've chased you your whole life. And if that's really what you want as a loving father, all I can do is say, okay. By the way, that's the definition of hell. Israel was experiencing their first hell. Instead of walking with God and living under his lordship, they gave up their security for a slavery in another country. And God spent years warning them that it's his presence that gives them security. It's his presence because his peace is tied to his presence and his presence was in this place. In just a second, I'm going to show you the same thing. But over and over again, God tells us to seek the welfare or the shalom or the peace of the city where I have sent you because when you give that place peace, it's in God's presence that you actually experience the joy that you need. I can't stress this enough. When you walk away from God, you aren't walking into freedom. You're walking into a slavery of another culture. <laughs> Do you really not think that our Western culture has cultural norms and laws that if you don't acquiesce to, you are going to be rejected from too? Don't get it twisted. You're not walking away from God for freedom. You're walking away from God for another God that will enslave you into something a whole lot worse. Israel chose their king. Israel chose their king and it led to their destruction. It is a picture for all of us that you have a good king and you need to choose. But God had a bigger plan. Even in their exile, listen to what he says. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. 
Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was assimilating them into his culture, and God was saying, oh no, I'm building a better culture through you. Listen, God is saying the same exact thing to us. Basically, your job, get a job, build a house, get married, plant your lives there. In other words, don't sit back passively and wait to go to heaven. I think that that's been the game plan in American history for the last hundred years. Get saved, do nothing, go to heaven. God's saying, I got a better plan. What if you get saved and I equip and send you to go change the city because I want to bring heaven down through you? By the way, those shirts, the one that Ian's wearing, that's what you're getting today. It says, in Alpharetta as in heaven. It's Jesus' plan. On earth as it is in heaven. What if we were kingdom builders here? In 2022, if God were to write this note, here's what he'd say. Get up out your mama's basement, get a job, do something productive. Right? Listen, here it is. Passivity kills. Passivity kills. In the midst of your pain and your failure, and I know that some of you have deep pain and failure, God is saying, I've got a plan even if you can't see it. Now watch this. What if Jeremiah 29 is a picture for what the world's supposed to look like today? If you read the New Testament, here's how it describes it. It says, heaven is not your home, or the the earth is not your home. Heaven is your home. We are citizens of heaven. Paul actually uses the language that we are resident aliens, that we have dual citizenship, and we ultimately belong to heaven, and yet God has sent us here, that our Babylon is the world the way that it's not supposed to be. And according to the Bible, our job is to bring heaven down. That's the picture. God sent the nation of Israel into captivity because he uses the systems of this world to actually transform the world through his people. He infiltrates from the inside. But you have to be involved to make a change. Listen to me, if you sit back and do nothing and wait, culture will shape this place. But if you decide that we are going to be a counterculture, that we are going to create a culture within a culture, we engage, God will shape this world. So God tells the nation of Israel, don't settle in, invest, build houses, and get involved. By the way, this passage is the primary reason that we name this church City Church. As we sat back dreaming about the type of church that we wanted to be, this was it. We wanted to be a place where human flourishing happens as we seek the peace of our city. We wanted to be a place that, that we believe that growth would happen, but, but listen, this is important. We wanted to grow more like bamboo than weed. It, weeds, that's probably important. Um, I know it's 2022, but let's, let's put an S on the end of that. You know bamboo, it, it pops up out of nowhere, except it takes five to seven years underneath the surface as it grows in its, its root systems and digs itself in so that when it does pop up, it has staying power. If you've ever seen bamboo, once it pops up, you're not getting rid of it. It's everywhere, Right? Weeds pop up, they have no staying power, and they go away. Listen, we believe that as you build a culture in this city, we build it like bamboo. The first five to seven years, we're building this cultural identity of we want to be people for God's kingdom, and we work really hard because we believe that God wants to do something sustainable here that will outlast all of us. And as we do that, and underneath the surface in our neighborhoods, in our, with our coworkers and our families, we just believe that one day it's going to sprout up and make change. That word welfare, that Hebrew word shalom, it means an all-encompassing peace. 
We, we want to see the shalom happen in Alpharetta, a sustainable shalom. We don't want to just pop up and go away. We want to be here. And let me just tell you, here's what it looks like. A shalom in Alpharetta, it looks like a place that you don't have to worry about crime because your city's safe. It looks like a place where human flourishing is abundant and jobs are everywhere at every single level. It looks like a place where there's an inner peace that's so vital and vibrant that there's an inner peace with Jesus that the suicide rates that we experience here and the opioid epidemics go down. It looks like a place that we invest our lives by showing people a better way. So I want to give you a couple practical ways that I believe that if we will grab onto these things, we could achieve that. Let me just tell you one really quickly. Dads, dads, you need to engage in your home and choose to be present. The the most strategic way to change the city is for dads to love their wives like Christ loved the church and and have self-control and not go after other things whenever it doesn't go your way. When men act like men, I'm just telling you, and take ownership of their families and they invest in their homes, they tend to have happier families, healthier families, and their families tend to follow Jesus. Let me just give you some stats. Did you know that almost every single mass shooter in American history, almost every single one, came from a family without a dad? Did you notice that 75% of all incarcerated people come from a broken home and 85% of kids who have behavioral issues come from a home where a dad is not present? Y'all, all the stats show that when a dad invests in their church, the trajectory of their lives and of their families change. Did you know that if a dad does not go to church, statistically speaking, only, there's only a 2% chance that their family will go to church? Y'all, we have acquiesced in a lot of ways our responsibility. I, 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 y'all... When we are engaged, everything changes. And yet, Father's Day seems to be the least attended church day of the year. The quickest way to make an immediate impact on our city is for dads to take ownership of their families. And let me just tell you this too, by the way, because we like to beat up on dads. A lot of the dads in this room are doing a fantastic job. You're doing a great job. Keep going. Keep investing. You will make a greater impact on this society than you could ever imagine. Write this down. The primary way that the gospel spreads throughout our world is when God's people create a place inside, a peace, I'm sorry, a peace inside of Babylon. The primary way that the gospel spreads is when God's people create peace within Babylon. So here's a couple ways. Number one, we need to invest where we are. We need to invest where we are. Notice that God told the nation of Israel to build houses and live in them. The only way you build a house is if you decide you're staying. Nobody builds a house and then moves six months later, especially when it takes you four years to build the house. Listen, until city church, until people, all of us, decide that this is a place that we're going to stay, we'll never invest. And here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you can never move. I get it. Like, life moves us. God moves us on. What I am saying is it's a mentality. I remember being at the summit, the church we came from, and we had a lot of college students, and every Duke student we had was like, yeah, I'm only going to be here for four years. I'm like, do you realize that most people only live in one place for four years? Why don't you choose to invest where you are as long as God has you, and then when he moves you, then move on. It's a mentality that says that I am committed to this place, that I am building my life here, and when we do that, God tends to move in us because, well, we invest there. When we choose to be planted here, we invest and we start to see God move as we seek the welfare of that city. That's when we will really start to love this place and that's when flourishing often begins to happen. Guys, 
we have to feel the responsibility for our city and our culture. I want you to see that a location that you live in is not an excuse for cultural assimilation. You hear what I'm saying? For a lot of us, it's like, well, one day I'm just going to go to heaven, so I'm just going to wait it out, or, or this isn't the place I'm going to live for the next 10 years, so I'm not going to do anything. That's not God's plan. God's plan is for his people, no matter how long they're there, to invest in that place while they're there. Just because Israel was transported to Babylon did not mean that they could abandon the culture that God had for them. You and I have a God-given responsibility to build a kingdom culture in the city that God has sent us and to live with intentionality as we do it. See, some of us need to stop dreaming about the grass being greener on the other side and just start planting some fertilizer here to make the grass as green as it needs to be. I love the way Sinclair Ferguson said it. Listen to what he says. Christian contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be totally at his disposal in the place he appoints at the time he chooses with the provision he is pleased to make. Listen, we don't need holy huddles in our church. We need holy people who live in this community and work in coffee shops and go teach our kids and go coach sports teams and go do whatever you do. We need people who are content and committed to where God has them now. Number two, we need to wow them by work. The thing that was going to change Babylon wasn't a microphone and a platform. The thing that was going to change Babylon was how believers lived in their suffering and how they worked hard through it. Now watch this, the only way, the only way that that is ever possible, the only way you're ever going to live differently when things are hard is if you believe God. By the way, that's the entire point of the promise of Jeremiah. For 28 chapters, he warns them. And if you read from chapter 29 to 31, it's all God's promises. In the middle of the struggle, God is saying, just believe me. Like, I know you can't see it, but I have a purpose that you may never be able to understand. And yet one day, it will all make sense. See, that perspective is the only way that you'll ever live with intentionality right now. It's when you believe a better way. When you believe the gospel, that's when you invest. I believe the same thing's true here. I, I, I recently read this book um, called Breaking the Social Media Prism. It's written by a Duke social scientist about how how we really function in the world and how we particularly function on social media. He, he made this revolutionary point. You ready for it? I'm going to save you 20 bucks on the book. You never change people's minds based on an argument. Right? Thanks, Captain Obvious. Like, we all know that. The question, though, is how do you change people's minds? You know how you do it? By lovingly investing in that person with the truth and the embodiment of your life. Listen, I see it over and over and over again. I've seen people's lives change here, and it wasn't because somebody beat them over the head with good theology. And I'm telling you, we believe in good theology. That's why we teach through the Bible. It was when they came alongside of one another and they walked with them through some of the hardest times of their life. <clears throat> people's minds change when they watch us work with integrity and love and care for each other. You see, the truth matters, but you have to earn the right to be heard. And the way you earn the right to be heard is by living incarnationally. That simply means you embody what you believe. Here's what I'd say. We have to live integrated lives. We have to live integrated lives. You see, I hear people talk about discipleship all the time. We need more discipleship. We need to do these Bible studies. Here, here's what most people mean by that. Most people mean, I need you to create a program 
and do all the work that I can show up to and you can teach me. That's not discipleship. The the greatest form of discipleship in the Bible is when you take what you believe about the Bible and you live it out in every sphere of your life. I I just read, the, the the American Bible Society just came out with a stat that among Bible-believing Christians, okay, that's important, only 16% of them actually read their Bibles. You, you hear what I'm saying? People who say that their life manuscript is this word, only 16% of them actually read it. If we want to live in a world where we make an impact, we have to embody the thing that we say we believe. For far too long, Christ followers have compartmentalized their lives. We, we have our work lives, we have our private lives, we have our church lives, we have our hang out with the girls' lives, we have our social media lives, and it's all fractured. And yet, the greatest impact is when there is integration in the wholeness of your life. You're not a fractured being, you're a human being that is embodied and indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Let me give you two quick, easy ways to integrate your life in a way that's really not that weird. Letter A is this. Make your primary community your church community. Now, I I phrase this on purpose. It's not your only community, but your primary community. You know, every stat shows that if you tell me your five closest friends, I will show you your next five years of your life. Every single stat shows that those people that you are around the most tend to have the most influence. As a matter of fact, I read a, I think it was in the Harvard Business Review study that showed that people who have friends that either gain weight or lose weight, their closest friends, they will do the same thing without even knowing it. So, Whoever you surround yourself with tends to have the greatest impact on your life. And the reality is, if you're mature enough to get this, you don't have the capacity to be friends with everybody, and that's okay. So choose your friends carefully. And I'm not saying don't hang out with other people. I'm saying that the people who have the primary influence on your life need to have a like-minded worldview because they are going to shape you over a long period of time. So the best investment you can make in this city is to let your closest friends be people who love Jesus and are spurring you along to be more like him. The second way, letter B, is commit to reading your Bible every day. Some of you might think that's crazy. You might be thinking, of course, preacher man would say that, but who has the time for that? Listen, oftentimes we change, we we transform into different people because we're not confident in ourselves around different crowds. So we tend to become like the people we're around because we want to be influenced. The reason why most of us do that is because we're not super confident in ourselves. When you read the Bible every single day, what you do is you allow God to transform your identity into who he says you are, and it's pretty incredible because you get security in the fact that the creator of the universe created you with intentionality. I'm just telling you, this was a game changer for me. I spent most of my life caring more about being cool and about what you cared about me. And at the end of the day, most of those people didn't even like me. They liked a fake version of me if they liked me at all. And I didn't even know who I was. It wasn't until I became confident in who God made me to be that I became secure in that that actually started making a difference. Y'all, these two things, if you'll just do these two simple things, you will engage the world without being enslaved to it. And that's where we begin to wow people with work. We, when we're so secure in who God has made us to be that we build relationships that don't compromise our values but point people to a better reality because our lives are integrated with everything that we believe. That's God's plan. 
God's plan for you is that you would live an integrated life and change this city. Again, I, I want to tell you this. God's plan is not for you to come hear me speak. You have the greatest power on the planet. You have the God of the universe who lives inside of you. And that's when we multiply, is when we live like that. Do you want to know what the most attractive thing on the planet is? When God's people live with confidence in this city, right? When we have messy lives, but we're united. When we point to a reality to this world that there is a better way. I, I told you this a couple weeks ago. There are people from almost every culture in the world that attend City Church, and we come together because we're united under something that's greater than ourselves. And that is a beautiful thing because we tell the world around us it's not homogeneity, and it's not uniformity. It's unity around the gospel, and it is possible. It's possible. God's plan is for that. It's not for you to numb your life until you get to heaven. It's for you to make a difference now. There's something absolutely beautiful about one who is content in Jesus. And because of their contentment and their confidence in the sovereignty of God, they work harder because they're not worried about your future. You are better and you love people better because you're secure in who God made you to be and you invest deeply because you believe that God has called you to be here. You wow people with your work whenever you have an integrated life that is so secure in God that it doesn't really matter what people think about you because you're going to invest deeply in them. Your confidence comes from somewhere better. Number three, we need to intercede for people. Look at verse seven. He says, but seek, seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. See what he's saying? Seek the shalom Seek the peace of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Listen, church, prayer is not just a ministry at our church. It is the ministry. Prayer is everything because prayer is your humble recognition that without God, you can't do it. See, prayer puts you in a posture of dependence on him. It acknowledges that we need God to move in our city, and without him, it's impossible. I love the, Jesus, the way Jesus said it in Matthew 19, 26. Jesus said to them, through man this is impossible, but through God all things are possible. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God makes the impossible possible? Y'all, I just want to confess to you, oftentimes I miss that. I'll just tell you over the last couple months, um, if you're new around here, we, we had a son that was born very premature and um, every time that something would happen, we would get to the end, this precipice of, of a cliff that if something didn't happen, uh, it was going to be bad. Just a, lot, a couple weeks ago, um, we, we were down at Atlanta Children's Hospital with Keller, my son, and the doctor tells us, hey, if he doesn't start gaining weight, he's going to be put on a feeding tube, and we're probably going to have to put him back in the NICU. So, you know, we, we do everything we can, right? We change his formula. We, we start feeding him every hour and a half. Like, we do all this stuff. And then there was this aha moment one day where I looked at Allison. And I was like, Allison, we need to ask people to pray. It's like, I don't know why that's always the last thing after I've exhausted every other resource. But we did. So I, I sent out a message to our small group leaders, to my small group. I put something on social media. And I kid you not, within like four days, he gained a pound. Um, and when you're only four pounds, a pound is a lot of weight. We brought him back down to the land of children. They're like, I don't know what you did. I was like, we didn't do anything. God makes the impossible possible. Y'all, for many of us, we don't pray until there's nothing left to do. And yet God is saying prayer is the answer. It is the ministry. Let me just ask you, when was the last time you spent specific time praying for your neighbors and your coworkers? How about this? If God were to answer every single prayer that you prayed over the last 24 hours, would anybody else be in heaven but you? 
If you were to answer every prayer that we had for our city over the last 24 hours, would anything be different in our city? You know, I, I, I don't, if you're anything like me, most of my prayers are very selfish. And yet God says you have the power, the ultimate power of the universe at your disposal. And God's like, just ask. Just ask and I will unleash a power to change this world. Do you believe it? Do you believe that God truly does change lives and does miracles when we humbly recognize that we can't do it on our own? God, we need you to do it. By the way, did you notice the very last thing that he says there? I'll highlight it for you. He says, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, again, shalom, that peace. If you want to be really pragmatic, let me just tell you, your ultimate joy is wrapped up in the peace of this city. Think about it. It's, it's really not that complicated. If our city is dangerous and our schools are bad and our, our, our uh, politics are corrupt, then our lives are bad. If you want to see the city change, we need to be involved in the peace of the city. It, it can even be a selfish motivator, but the more peaceful the city is, the better your life will be. So the most pragmatic thing you can do with your life is get involved and pray that God would move in this city. Listen, what if, City Church, what if that's what we went all in on this year? And not for, prag not for pragmatism purposes, but we did it because we truly believe that God is building something better. What if we went all in on those three things? What if we chose to be present in this city? Like really present. That means that we invested here. That means that we don't, we don't run away to somewhere else every time that we get a spare time off, but we really choose to invest, to be present in our church, to be present in our city. That means like we, we decide that we're going to coach our kids' sports teams when we don't even have the margin to do that. That's probably for me because I'm struggling with that one right now. Or we get involved in the HOA. I can't think of a bigger exile into Babylon than being involved in the HOA. That one's for you because I'm not doing that one. We mentor at the schools, right? We, we mentor. We take our lunch break once a week to mentor at the schools. Or we, we get involved with Bald Ridge Lodge where Wendy is the director there uh, and uh, whatever Wendy does there. She runs the whole thing. I don't know what that means, but she'll tell you how you can get involved there. What if we decided we were going to foster? Because I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of kids in our city that get shipped off to other cities because we don't have enough foster families in this city. What if we just decided we we're going to do that? Look, there's a million different ways we can be involved, but we have to decide that we're going to do it. We're going to take our lot that God has chosen for us and invest. We need to wow people by how hard we work. That means, listen, be people of integrity. Let your yes be yes. There's nothing worse than people being like, that's a city church person. I can't trust anything they say. No, I want to be the opposite. Do you know what happens around here? The, the principal called last spring and said, hey, we had a kid at our school whose family was murdered. And we didn't know who else to call. So we called you and they need a lot of help. Can you help them? What if that's the reputation that we had? Because we wowed people by how incarnationally we lived and worked. And not just as an organization or an institution, but what if that's your reputation? Like, I know I can call Scott. Because Scott's going to pick up the phone and he's going to be there. And ben, ben, no matter what's going on, he will be there, he will pray with me, and he will help me. What if we were a people that whenever they looked at our families, they, we, we wowed them by how much we cared about our families and we invested in them and we loved one another. Listen, when we work really hard to make peace in this city, we make a huge difference. Number three, again, to be known for people of prayer. We pray for our friends and we pray for our neighbors. We pray for our city officials and for other churches. By the way, we're not in competition with other churches. 
Listen, we believe God's building a kingdom, and we are one small representation of that. And as all the churches flourish in our city and in our country, the better the whole place gets. So I praise God for other churches around us. Praise God for Stone Creek and First Baptist and North Point. I hope that they flourish like crazy and they grow like crazy because God's kingdom grows and it's not a competition. We're on the same team. So what if we prayed for them? What if we prayed that God would grow our influence? You know what craziest questions I get all the time? Uh, do you want City Church to grow? Yeah. Of course I want it to grow. Why? Not because I want to have a big building, but because I want your friends and your family and your kids to experience the same joy in Jesus that we have, right? And so we want to make room for that. Y'all, don't just pray either. Pray and believe it. Pray and believe it. If you'll do these three things, here's what will happen. Over the course of our lifetime, God will grow a better kingdom than the one that we live in, a better culture, a counterculture. He will develop us to belong here and to be sent there. See, culture thinks that it's influencing this world, and God is up in heaven right now laughing, saying, no, I'm bringing my kingdom down, and I'm going to use you to do it. I believe that the church's best days are ahead of us. I believe that this is one of the first times in American history that the church was so distinguishable from the culture that we actually have the greatest ability to make an impact on our culture, because the lines are no longer blurred. You don't come because you have to anymore. You come because you want to. And as you do that, and as you embody that, and you don't just come, but you're sent, God makes a huge difference. Let's wrap it up with this. Verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Here's the deal. There will always be a competing message for your heart. See, don't be deceived by it. People will want you to believe that it's a false gospel that God would ever make you struggle. And yet, God's telling them, that's not true. I sent you there. I know the plans that I have for you, and sometimes my plans for you just won't make any sense to you. And yet, they're still my plans. Don't believe it. There will always be competing messages that will tell you that there's some stuff that's just not true. What is true is that God knows exactly what he's doing, and even when it doesn't make sense to you, he is in control. Did you know that there are over 4,000 to 10,000 messages that you will hear every single day competing for your soul? Every single day, they will market something over 10,000 times to you. I'm just telling you, those competing messages, if you're not careful, will take over. So in that day, there was a false prophet named Hananiah. Hananiah came to the nation of Israel, and he says, God would never do that to you. God loves you. Why would he do that? Two years. Don't worry. Just hang out in Babylon for two years. God is going to come and wreak havoc, and you're going to go back. And God looks at Jeremiah, and he says, don't believe the lie. I'm sending them there for 70 years. By the way, that's their entire lifetime. And I'm not sending them there because I hate them. I'm sending them there because I want to be a change agent in this world through you. Don't believe the lie, guys. Don't believe the lie. Kingdom work is hard work. Kingdom work is hard work. Cities don't just change when we sit back and do nothing, they change when we roll up our sleeves. They don't just change when we live in holy huddles, they live when we live holy lives. See, it's easy to think prosperity and yet God doesn't say prosperity, he says peace. He says build my kingdom. Y'all, in just a second, he's gonna tell the nation of Israel the most famous and most misquoted verse in the Bible, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare. Here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying, look at it right here. He's saying welfare, peace. If you will live this way, if you will live this way, he will do something incredible through you. 
He has placed us here to be a part of building a better kingdom. You are the answer for God's change. You're not here in this city or in this church on accident. You are here in this city because God wants to use you to build a better kingdom. In Alpharetta, as in heaven, you are a culture changer. And we have the opportunity in this place at this time to invest here. And God's great security to you is, I know the plans that I have for you. And my plans for you, they're not for prosperity, even though that may come, they're for peace. And God's peace is always accompanied by his presence. And now watch this. The presence of God is actually within you. You have the very presence of God in you. And he says, now go live that way in this world. City Church, that's who we are. That was the plan the last four years. That's the plan the next 40 years. That's who we will always be. We'll be a people that's committed to the place that he sent us to embody the gospel and to bring his kingdom down. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for teaching us to live this way. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, for the people I look out at, maybe it's a teacher or a a police officer or a a lawyer or a doctor or a stay-at-home mom or an admin. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray that we would take our lot in life, the one that you've given us, and we would do whatever you've called us to do with intentionality in this place, believing and trusting for a greater kingdom. Help us to do it, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.